Well, good morning. It is amazing that we get to send some people to a place that's in need and hear the stories of what God has done through them here, what their experiences are like. Um, we are certainly a people who are not meant to stay within these walls and be concerned only with the matters in these walls. We are a people who are meant to go out. And I love hearing the stories of, of what they did. So if you were involved in that trip in any way, on behalf of all of us, thank you. Thank you for representing us well. Um, and to prove that they represented us well, I have a letter here from Jim Davis, uh, who is the pastor of Faith and Hope Baptist Church. And I'm going to read this letter to you. Good morning to the Providence Mission Team. Once again, I would like to express my heartfelt gratitude for your labor of love given to Faith and Hope, to the Providence Rescue Mission and the community of Providence. Each of you served with a positive attitude and went the extra mile to accomplish the task at hand. I want to thank you for letting me share my heart. I felt safe with you to do so. Please keep us in prayer as we will pray for you also. I look forward to seeing you again in the future. To each of the leaders, thank you for all the planning and hard work that made this trip possible. May God keep his hand upon each of you and grant you his peace. I read this letter and I feel proud of the team that went from here. So, um, yeah, what a wonderful thing. Thank you. Okay. Last week, we began in the book of Mark. Uh, as I said, I think it's going to take us about a year to work through the book of Mark. And, uh, and we talked about, last week, we talked about the great messenger, John the Baptist, who was prophesied to come some 400 years before his arrival on the scene, before his birth. John came to prepare the people for the end of an age, for the coming Messiah, and consequently for the beginning of a new age. Namely, that new age is where God comes to dwell with his people. The way in which John was preparing the people, the Israelites or the Jews, was by calling them to repent and then by administering a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So you remember all of that. It's a little bit of review. Uh, and then all of a sudden, Jesus appears. Without any introduction, Mark loves to do that. So we're going to read uh, our passage today. We're going to be reading from Mark 1, verses 1 through 11. So turn to Mark 1, and I'll read verses 1 through 11. You can follow along with me. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me 
He who is mightier than I comes, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So today we are focusing on these three verses concerning the baptism of Jesus. The length of this passage, these three verses, is is massively disproportionate to the significance of them. It would be sort of like listening to the news, and in passing they say, North Korea has just launched an intercontinental ballistic missile, and then they moved on to the next story. You would say, what? What is going on? What is going to be, where is it going to land? What are the consequences of its impact? Can we stop it? Does this mean war? Right? You would, you'd probably be reeling out of your mind trying to get a handle of what they just said. So similarly, a story like that in the news would be massively disproportionate to its length. This story of the baptism is massively disproportionate. Uh, its length is massively disproportionate than its significance. So in, in these three verses... You have a mountain of prophecy that's fulfilled. There's significance for the turning of ages. There's significance with the covenant with Israel, the Trinitarian work of God, the establishment of the church, and and so much more. We could spend probably two or three, maybe a month, on these three verses. Alas, if we're going to do this in a year, (laughs) we have to just spend one week on it. But the main point of these three verses, the the thing I want you to walk away with is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He is God in the flesh. Hopefully you understand that, but I want to I want to grow your understanding of what that means. So we have a lot to consider. In three verses we have a lot to consider and we need to pray. So pray with me. Father, we are, we are weak and prone to error, prone to believe the things that we want to believe because they suit our situation. But God, would you rivet us by the truth that is in your word? Would you show us your reality and speak to our hearts? We long to hear from you. Lord, I pray you would use my mouth today to present your word with truth. Keep me from error and keep our hearts open and receptive to what you would have us hear. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When you get to these verses... Concerning the baptism, in my mind, you are immediately confronted with a problem. Do you remember? So Jesus is baptized. Do you remember what kind of baptism this is? Look back at verse 4. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
Jesus receives a baptism for repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And you see a problem here? Jesus is supposed to be perfect. What is he doing? Does this imply that Jesus is not perfect? That he has sin? That he's seeking something he's trying to be forgiven for? That he's repenting for? Does it therefore imply that Jesus is not God? Well, the answer is a resounding no. Jesus was perfect. Jesus was without sin. Jesus is absolutely God. In fact, these three verses are a resounding trumpet blast that Jesus is God. So what is happening? Why on earth is Jesus submitting himself to this baptism of repentance? The book of Isaiah is going to be very helpful for us to answer this problem. Um, There's a lot of prophecies in Isaiah that refer to the coming Messiah uh, as the servant of Yahweh. And he is no ordinary servant. This coming Messiah that's prophesied in Isaiah, he is no ordinary servant. He is a suffering servant. But through his suffering, he brings redemption to the people of Israel. He is a divine servant. So we're going to first look at Isaiah 49, verse 3. So I want you to turn there with me. We're going we're gonna to be looking at Isaiah quite a bit today. So have a finger in Mark and a finger in Isaiah because we're going to be going back and forth. So Isaiah 49.3. Again, this passage is about the Messiah. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. I don't know if you caught it, but something amazing just happened in that verse. The nation of Israel and all of its people, all of its laws, all of its history is being condensed into one man, into the God-man. There is so much that we could say about this. Um, We could spend a long study on what it means for Christ to be the true Israelite. Uh, and we are going to come back to this theme next week a lot, a lot more strongly than this week. But we have to understand a little bit of this if we're going to understand why Jesus is doing this baptism of repentance. Because it resolves our problem. So Israel, being condensed into one man, the true Israel, or the true Israelite. Remember what, what he says in Isaiah 49.3. He said to me, you are my servant. And that servant means Messiah, the suffering servant, Messiah, he calls him Israel. So Jesus is the true Israelite because only he was able to fulfill all of the law. If you remember, all of the 613 commands in the law, only Jesus fulfilled every single requirement. The nation of Israel that was commanded to to fulfill these laws never could. Pathologically broke the law. Even the best of them, even Moses, even David, name your Israelite, they could not fulfill the law. They could never meet it. Therefore, Jesus is the only one from Israel who fulfilled the law, thus making him the true Israelite. The only Israelite who behaved in the way that God intended Israel to behave, in in all of the fullness that that implies. So where man failed, 
to produce their own righteousness. The God-man did not. So it is behalf, it is on behalf of the failing people of Israel that Jesus submits himself to this baptism of repentance where he seeks the forgiveness of sins. So what Jesus is doing, this is incredibly significant, what Jesus is doing is self-identifying with sinners. And really, this should not be a surprise for us because Jesus has done this somewhere else that we're all very, very familiar with. It's the reason that Jesus went to the cross. He went to the cross, not because he was a sinner, but because he was self-identifying with sinners. He, was, he submitted to the cross. He sheds his blood so that his people can be forgiven. So already with this baptism, his, his uh, public ministry begins in a way that where he is seeking forgiveness, seeking repentance for his people. And his people are those that, that cling to the true Israelite and trust in his righteousness. We trust in his promise and that his life is ours. And through that, we are redeemed as his people. He, the true Israelite, the one that fulfilled the law, he is the one that redeems us. And those people would be called, you'll see it referred to in the Old Testament, these people are the true Israel, those that trust in the true Israelites. And today we call these people that are among us the church. So much I could say about that, but I'm going to have to skip right through it. So Jesus receiving a baptism of repentance was in no way contradictory to his divine nature. It is a profound statement about who Jesus is to Israel, about who he is to us, to the world. It signifies that, that true repentance and forgiveness of sins can only come through Jesus. It's only he who is capable of fulfilling the law. And I'm going to hammer that again and again and again, week after week after week, because we are so prone to thinking that we can do something to, to fulfill the law. What a lie that is. Only Christ, only Christ can meet the law. All we have is the promise of Christ and that he would redeem us. So with this baptism, Jesus begins his public ministry. For in this moment, he begins his salvific work, where the work leads to us becoming redeemed uh, to, be, to be saved from our condemnation, to be removed from the burden of the law. All right, there's something else you may have noticed in verse 9. But honestly, I think you would have only noticed it if you were a linguist or if you read a commentary like I did. <laughs> so Mark starts, uh, starts writing in verses 1 through 8 um, in the simple past tense. And then when we get to verse 9, he changes to the imperfect tense. He also switches. He's writing in the passive voice. That might not mean anything to you. I had to actually research what that meant. <laughs> um, but when you realize what, it's, what he, Mark is doing, it's actually extremely significant and, and really um, exciting. 
So first, the first thing that this grammatical change does, it puts John the Baptist into a subordinate role and it elevates Christ to be the center of the story. Then what it does is it, it draws you in to the narrative. With, with this change, you know that these events have happened in the past, but it's almost as if they are happening today. So I'm going to give you an example of what this grammatical change looks like so you can see it. And I wish I put a PowerPoint together for this reason. Anyway, uh, I'm going to to say uh, this verse in the simple past tense. It will sound different. So this is what it would have read like if it were in the simple past tense. He saw the heavens torn open and the Spirit descend on him like a dove. So it reads like a, a fact in the past, distant. So the same sentence in the imperfect tense, which is how it is written. He saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Do you hear the difference? This grammatical change, it engages us. It engages the reader. It makes you feel like you're there watching John lift Jesus out of the water and seeing and hearing all that is going on. Mark is strategically doing this so that we don't look at Jesus as some dusty historical figure. But we look at him as somebody who is alive and present and brings us into the the life of him. It's someone that we can relate to and almost reach out and touch. What Mark is doing is he wants the humanness of Jesus to be palatable. And notice... Jesus is the subject of, of this brief story, of this baptism. But the story is not about what Jesus is doing. The story is about what is being done to Jesus. First John baptizes him, and then God does something that literally changes everything. Let me read verses 10 and 11. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am pleased. Three things happen in these two verses. Three things that carry almost unimaginable weight. And they are full of prophetic significance. So we're going to be spending some time in Isaiah. The first thing that happens is that the heavens are torn open. The second thing, the Spirit descends like a dove. And then third, God speaks. So I'm going to take them one at a time. The heavens being torn open. Mark rivets us with the urgency of this next part. It's one of his favorite words. I mentioned it last week, the word immediately. When Jesus comes up out of water, when he breaks the surface of the water, immediately the heavens are torn open. And the word that is used in Greek to, to say torn is interesting. 
It's worth looking at. It's a very strong word. It's, it's a violent word, actually. It's the same kind of word that's associated with cataclysmic demonstrations of God's power. The same kind of tearing that will happen to the Mount of Olives on the last day. The same kind of tearing that happened when the Red Sea was torn apart for the nation of Israel to walk through. And Mark uses this word one other time in his gospel. At the death of Christ, when the, when the curtain between the Holy of Holies and the people is torn in two. It's a word of cataclysmic demonstration of God's power. In prophetic language, this heavens being torn open means one thing. God is about to come down. So you have your finger in Isaiah. Look at Isaiah 64.1 with me. Isaiah 64, verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Do you hear the longing for God in that verse? Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. God certainly heard this plea. And God, with violent force, tears apart the dividing heavens and comes down to be with His people. God came down to be with man. For Jesus is God in the flesh. God has a body and He can eat and He can bleed. He is human. Jesus is God. And the Spirit descends on Him like a dove. So since the time of Malachi, which was shortly after the second temple was built, the Spirit of God apparently disappeared from the face of the earth. It was a Spirit that came upon the great prophets and gave them words and spoke to the people of Israel. But there had been no prophecy For 430 years, the voice of God had been quiet. The Spirit of God had been gone. Okay, 430 years. I said a number. It probably meant nothing to you. So I thought this might be helpful. 430 years ago from this year, it was 1587. People were being held in the Tower of London in prison. Mary, Queen of the Scots, had her head chopped off. The first English person was born in the New World in what we call Virginia. That is a long time ago. Think of everything that has happened from then until now. Utica didn't even exist. That's how long God was silent for. If God was silent for us since 1587, would we even think about him? Amazing that the, the Jews held their religion, right? 430 years. But the Spirit descends like a dove. That plea of yearning from the Jews. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. It is fulfilled in two ways. There stands God in the flesh among people. And there descends God in the Spirit. 
the spirit, we have God among us in, in two ways in this passage. It's amazing. It's, it says that the Spirit was descending on him like a dove. But the way in which Mark wrote this, in the Greek, it intensifies that statement. And it would more accurately be read or translated, the Spirit was descending into him like a dove. The Spirit was not just resting on Christ, not just sitting on him, but it was unifying with him. It was coming in to Jesus. Jesus, the Word of God, and the Spirit, the power of God, are being unified in one man, walking among sinners, walking among the people. And this only further emphasizes the godness of Jesus So in the past, in the Old Testament, the Spirit would would rest on a person for a time and something might happen. There might be uh, some kind of miracle or some great powerful sign or somebody would have a prophetic word and then the Spirit would leave. It was in a temporary sense that the Spirit came upon people. The Spirit is not entering into Jesus in a temporary way. In a permanent way. The Spirit was coming to dwell there, never to leave. Entering a human, never to leave. For Jesus was fully human, is fully human. And this is exactly how Christ Christ baptizes with the Spirit. We talked about last week that we just read in verse 8. Jesus baptizes with the Spirit in the same way. He gives you His Spirit to dwell within you, to be a part of you, to to be unified with your spirit. But, be careful. This this moment is not implying that that, that this whole scene is when the spirit is unifying with Christ. It is an affirmation of that pre-existent reality. It's an affirmation to Jesus because Jesus has a body with all of its weaknesses and human frailties and limitations. And it's an affirmation to us that although Jesus is human, he is fully God. A profound mystery that we and the church historically have really struggled to understand. Christ, fully human, as much as you are, Christ, fully God. And then the next event happens, and it builds upon these two even more powerfully. A voice came down from heaven. The Father in heaven speaks. And now, without question, the 430-year silence is over. God has spoken. Verse 11. A voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son, With you, I am well pleased. If Malachi was the last book to be written, Malachi, in large part, was about the coming Messiah, the prophet who would prepare the way for the coming Messiah, the end of the age in which the coming Messiah would herald. The first words after the 430-year silence is God saying, You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. 
God is essentially announcing, this is the Messiah. And God is speaking directly to His Son, Jesus. This is one of three places in our Gospels where He does that. You are my Son. does not mean Jesus becomes His Son in this moment as if He were somehow adopted. Again, it's affirming a pre-existent reality, one that existed before time. The Father is affirming His loving relationship for His Son. Just like if I were to say to my daughter, You are my daughter. I am well pleased in you. It doesn't mean that in that moment she became my daughter. That would be crazy. It, it means that I love her. I just want to affirm her in that. I do love you, Sierra. I lost my place. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so you're seeing that Christ has this pre-existent, unified relationship with God the Father, just like God the Son has a pre-existent and unified relationship with God the Spirit. You're not going to find the word Trinity in the Bible. That's just a term that the church has made up to explain the nature of God. But here in this passage, you see all the members of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, they are all unified. And they are expressing delight and oneness with each other. They're even glorifying each other in this moment. We say that we worship one God. And that one God exists in three persons. And, here, and, and this is a profound mystery. But here you have that profound mystery on display. Alright, let's think about that declaration from the Father a little more. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So reading this at face value, you can see all kinds of significance, some of which I've already mentioned. You see the humanness and the godness of Jesus. You see the Trinitarian nature of God. You see the love shared between the Father and Son and so on. But when we inform this statement with the Old Testament, its significance grows a hundredfold. So we're going to go back to Isaiah. Isaiah 49.3. So you're turning to Isaiah 49.3. And he said to me, or rather, yeah, and he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. When the Father speaks to Jesus from from heaven, you are my son, and you I am well pleased. You can hear an echo of this Verse from Isaiah 49. There's a stark similarity. It's not the same, but there's a similarity. It's an echo. Then even more profoundly, it's profound because of the word servant, and I'm going to come back to that. Even more profoundly, though, is Isaiah 42.1. So flip over a couple pages to Isaiah 42.1, and you'll definitely see it here. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen In whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. In the Old Testament prophecies, as I I said before, 
The Messiah is portrayed in two ways. One of which I said before is a suffering servant. And the other way is the victorious king. But this whole display in the Jordan River is clearly equating Jesus as the Messiah in both of these ways. In the suffering servant, the Spirit is upon him, as it says in Isaiah 42.1. We just saw the, the Spirit descending into Jesus like a dove. The Spirit is upon him, and the Father's soul delights in him, in his servant. He is well pleased. So Isaiah 42.1 says, The Father's soul delights in his servant. And he is well pleased. Isaiah 49.3 says that God is glorified through his suffering servant. So you can see that God, listen, God is purposing Jesus Christ, his suffering servant, for suffering. Suffering for Christ was purposed long before Christ was born as a man. Long before even the foundations of the world were laid. His purpose for suffering and purpose for hardship. God the Father and God the Son are totally united in this purpose. Especially when you again consider why Christ is receiving this baptism. A baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins to self-identify with sinners. How humbling that must have been for the almighty, perfect, righteous God to submit himself to a baptism of repentance. But like I said, the Messiah is not just a suffering servant, but a victorious king. So when the Father speaks from heaven, he is also equating Jesus with this victorious king. So listen to Psalm 2, verses 6 and 7. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, the holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, in whom Uh, Today I have begotten you. There are two um, entities that God has called his son. Well, three really, but two in the Old Testament. One was Israel. One was King David in these verses. These verses refer to King David, the great king of Israel, but also to the Messiah, the ultimate king of Israel. So the son, when God says you are my son, he only says it to the nation of Israel and to King David. And you've already seen how Jesus is the true Israelite. Now you see how he is the ultimate king, the victorious king of Israel. You are my son. So Jesus is the one sent by the Father as a victorious king, to defeat the power of Satan, to destroy death, to break the power of sin, to end all injustice. When the Father says, you are my son, my beloved son, he's declaring that Jesus is the prophesied great and ultimate king. The one that the Jews longed for. The one that will claim ultimate victory. The suffering servant, the victorious king, all pointing to the fact that Jesus Christ of Nazareth in Galilee is the Son of God. It does not mean that Jesus merely gets to speak and act on behalf of God the Father, but it means that Jesus 
is actually God himself. And this is on display in Jesus' life later when he does things that only God could have done, like forgiving sins, like accepting Gentiles, like exercising authority over demons or challenging the religious establishment or giving new covenant uh, commands or stilling the storm or rising from the dead or walking on water, keep on going. He continues to prove that he is God. And this is not in my notes, but crazily, the Jews keep asking him for signs. The Son of God is God. He is the beloved Son. How the Father delights in His Son. Not in a self-sacrificing, I've got to give you mercy and grace kind of way. It is in an effortless, pure, joyful way. When the Father looks at Jesus, He admires Him. He cherishes Him. He treasures Him. And He absolutely relishes the things that He sees His Son doing. The Father loves His Son. Because in Jesus, the Father sees what is most valuable to Him. And that is the full display of the glory of God. In Jesus Christ. Colossians 2.9 says of Jesus. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The whole fullness of God dwells in Jesus in the flesh. It is amazing to think that God became man in the flesh. And God the Father loves to see His fullness in display on the flesh. How He loves His Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. So I'm going to deviate from our passage for a little. Because I want to bring up uh, something that's very practical to all of us. Every one of us. The question must arise in your head. So what does it mean to go through the believer's baptism? Talking last week, baptism of the Spirit. This week, Jesus' baptism of repentance. I feel like, what, what is baptism? What does it mean for us? So it is something that Christ commands every believer to do. We should understand something about it, right? The baptism that we do is not a baptism of repentance, although we are penitent when we do it. See, Jesus was self-identifying with sinners when he submitted himself to the baptism of repentance. We're already sinners. We don't need to identify with sinners. We're sinners. So our baptism is totally different. When Jesus, uh, when he self-identifies, he's repenting on our behalf, his people's behalf, So when we get baptized, I love this, when we get baptized, we self-identify with the life of Christ, with his righteousness. Christ identifies himself with sinners. 
It says, He became sin for our sake. In baptism, we are signifying that we identify with His life and His righteousness. And His righteousness becomes ours. When we go down into the water, we're symbolizing that we're dying to ourselves. We come up out of the water, we're symbolizing we are alive to Christ, dead to self, alive to Christ. And perhaps the best scriptural summation of what is being announced through baptism is found in Galatians 2.20. It's going to be on the screen. You might want to flip there. You might want to underline it. You might want to put it on a sign and put it over your door so you can look at it every time you leave. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. So when we get baptized, we are saying that in Christ I have been crucified in the flesh. I've put my pride and my selfishness and my anger and my ambitions and my addictions and my jealousies and my lusts all up on the cross to be crucified with Christ. And now I live by faith because Christ loves me. And He gave Himself for me. He suffered for me so that I might have eternal life. That is what we declare when we get baptized. Is that not amazing? Remember what names Jesus says that you're baptized into. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Just like the Trinity was involved in Jesus' baptism, the Trinity is involved with your salvation. It is the Son who purchased your forgiveness through the cross. And it is the Son's life and righteousness that is given to you. It is the Spirit that has brought you from death to life. And it is God the Father who has chosen you. If you are a a believer, it is because God has chosen you. Because He loves you. And He did not do it begrudgingly. God did not do this work in you begrudgingly. He's not brood over you like some strict and abusive father ready to scold you for every infraction that you make and every sin that you commit. He chose you because He loves you. And He gives you the life of His Son. And He puts His Spirit in you to dwell in you. You are not saved when you get baptized, though. Salvation is by no work, not even baptism. Baptism is a declaration of salvation. You are announcing to everybody when you get baptized that you are 
a believer in Jesus Christ. It is a mini-drama declaring to everyone, you are a new creation. You're united to the Son of God through faith. It's a glorious celebration that we get to participate in. A glorious celebration. So, have you been baptized? And if not, why? I challenge you to consider taking that next step. If you've come to faith in Christ, if you trust in Him for your salvation, I challenge you. Be baptized. Proclaim what Christ has done in your life. Do not be ashamed. We will celebrate with you. We would love to see you get baptized. And if you do want to, come speak with me afterwards. Come grab one of the other elders, Dave Noss, Dave Fuller, Norm Fuqua, and where'd he go? Yeah, Jim Talento, he was right there. So, Grab one of us. Talk with us. Love to see you get baptized. But if you don't know Jesus, today is the day of salvation. Do not harden your heart. I've said what He's done. Do not reject Him. His hand is extended. Do not slap it away. He loves you and He gave Himself for you. Would you believe? Would you come to faith? If you don't really know what that means, if you don't know how to do that, I would be so happy to talk with you. Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee plunges into the water to identify with sinners. Through his suffering service, he endures the struggles of humanity, and then he dies in the most horrific of ways to pay for our sins. Then as a victorious king, he bursts from the grave and he defeats death He entered our prison and He shattered our chains and now we cry out, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Only God could have done this. The beloved Son from the Father. The Son of God. This God become man. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And He has. He is alive. Next week, we will see Jesus identify himself even more profoundly with sinners, even more profoundly as the true Israelite. And we're going to see what that means for the turning of ages. And it is powerful. So that's where we're going next week. Would you pray with me? It is amazing, God, to consider all that you have done to bring us redemption. It's amazing what you have done. Nothing short of tearing apart the heavens and becoming a man. Leaving glory and all the divine rights that you had and becoming a man full of limitations and weaknesses and you never erred but lived righteously 
so that we might be given your righteousness and you might be glorified in it. We are thankful, Father. We are thankful. Lord, I pray that we would all um, greatly desire to see, not just know that you're in us, but see you living out of us. See you impacting the world around us. God, would you be pleased to do that? To use us, to spread this good news, to share that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that Jesus Christ did come down. He knows what it's like to be a man. Help us to share this. Be bold. Again, Father, we thank you. We trust in you. And we pray in the Holy Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.